Welcome to the GDPR Weekly Show, one of the top five GDPR podcasts worldwide. Here is what's coming up in this week's episode. Welcome to episode 155 of the GDPR Weekly Show, and this week we are extremely pleased to welcome back Dr. Jackie Taylor, worldwide recognised expert in data protection, to talk about the age-appropriate design code, which is coming into force in the UK on the 2nd of September this year, and also talk other matters related to data protection and GDPR. It's a fascinating interview, and we split it up into several parts throughout this episode, as the interview as a whole goes on for almost an hour, and so we've put other articles in between to allow a variety for the listener, as we always do here on GDPR Weekly Show. As a result of the interview, this is a bumper episode of the GDPR Weekly Show, somewhat longer than our normal episodes, but please do listen to the whole episode because it's full of fascinating facts and information for you to use in your role, whatever that may be, related to data protection, or indeed just to further your education in data protection, if that's why you're here. So in addition to the interview coming up in this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show, we have news that the Luxembourg regulator has imposed a record GDPR penalty on Amazon. We then travel to the Netherlands where TikTok has been fined €750,000 for not having a Dutch language version of its privacy policy. We then travel to Ireland where the Irish DPC is expected to issue its fine for privacy breaches against WhatsApp in the next few weeks. We then have news from Clubhouse that they have denied that there's been any data breach of their data this week. We then travel to Hackney in East London in the UK, where Hackney Council's data breach has exposed residents' data. And we then travel to Northern Ireland, where the COVID passport scheme has had a data breach. And we then travel to Germany, also with COVID passports, where the German pharmacies have now ceased issuing COVID-19 passports because of a data breach. We then travel to France, where Le Figaro has been fined for cookie breaches. During our interview with Dr. Jackie Taylor this week, we several times touched on the age-appropriate design code, and so we've put together a brief article which gives you an initial explanation of the age-appropriate design code, and we'll be building on that in future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. We then travel to the USA, where Uber drivers in Maryland are to get a payment of $100 each after Uber delayed reporting a data breach. We then have an article just for general information about how data protection authorities right across Europe are now focusing on all aspects of GDPR for breaches and not just data breaches. We then travel to Germany where a German court has ruled on how comprehensive data subject access request fulfilment has to be. And then we finish this week with some help on data retention policy. So as always, a complete mix of articles for you here on this week's episode of GDPR Weekly Show. We do hope that you find the articles and particularly the interview with Dr. Jackie Taylor useful and informative. As always, if you have any feedback for us, please do email us at feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com. We do read every single piece of feedback we receive, and wherever possible, we incorporate your suggestions for improvements into the show. Unfortunately, due to the volume of feedback we receive, it's not always possible for us to respond to each piece of feedback individually. Want to ask GDPR questions live? Come and join our GDPR surgery on Clubhouse, Thursday, 4pm UK time. We begin this week with news that Luxembourg's National Commission for Data Protection, the CMPD, has hit Amazon with a record-breaking €746 million, that's roughly US dollars GDPR fine over the way it uses customer data for targeted advertising. 
Amazon disclosed the ruling in an SEC filing on Friday this week in which it slammed the decision as baseless and added that it intended to defend itself vigorously in this matter. Maintaining the security of our customers' information and their trust are top priorities, and Amazon spokesperson said in a statement, there has been no data breach and no customer data has been exposed to any third party. These facts are undisputed. We strongly disagree with the CMPD's ruling and we intend to appeal. The decision relating to how we show customers relevant advertising relies on subjective and untested interpretations of European privacy law and the proposed fine is entirely out of proportion with even that interpretation. The basis for this penalty stretches right back to 2018 when a complaint was made by the French privacy rights group La Quadrature de Net, a group that claims to represent the interests of thousands of Europeans to ensure their data isn't being used by big tech to manipulate their behaviour for political or commercial purposes. The complaint, which also targeted Apple, Facebook, Google and LinkedIn, and was filed on behalf of more than 10,000 customers, alleges that Amazon manipulates customers with commercial means by choosing what advertising information they receive. The body that submitted the complaint welcomed the fine issued by the CMPD, which comes after three years of silence that made them feel the worst. The model of economic domination based on the exploitation of our privacy and free will is profoundly illegitimate and contrary to all the values that our democratic societies claim to defend, they said. CMPD has also ruled that Amazon must commit to changing its business practices, however the regulator has not publicly committed on its decision and Amazon didn't specify what revised business practices are being proposed. It seems almost inevitable that Amazon will appeal this penalty and so doubtless we will be returning to this story in future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Staying with big tech, the Dutch Data Protection Authority on Thursday this week imposed a €750,000, that's roughly dollars fine on TikTok for violating the privacy of young children following a wide-scale investigation which it launched last year. The data regulator took this action against TikTok because TikTok provided privacy policies in English rather than Dutch, which meant that children were more than likely to sign up to the service without fully understanding how TikTok collects, processes and uses personal data or the implications of sharing personal data on social media. The DPA deemed the violation of the General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR provisions, on clear and legible descriptions of data selection practices. TikTok is one of the most popular apps in the Netherlands with around 3.5 million users, many of them children. Under Dutch law and the GDPR, children are treated as an especially vulnerable category. And indeed, we're going to come on to talk much more about that in this episode of the GDPR Witty Show with our interview with Dr. Jackie Taylor. Perhaps unsurprisingly, TikTok has logged an objection to the fine. TikTok has made some changes to the way its privacy policy works. The company has implemented a number of changes to make its app safer for children under the age of 16. For example, parents now have more control over their child's account by having the ability to manage their child's privacy settings through their own account and the app's family pairing feature. However, while welcoming the changes TikTok has made, the DPA has raised concerns children can still pretend to be older by simply filling in a different age when creating their account. The Dutch DPA is not the first authority to criticise TikTok for its weak age verification checks. In 2019, TikTok, then called Musical.ly, received a $5.7 million fine from the US Federal Trade Commission for similar failings and was ordered to implement stronger age verification measures. At the time that the Dutch DPA launched its investigation in May 2020, TikTok didn't have a European headquarters. However, TikTok has since set up its operations in Ireland, 
which means the Irish State Protection Commission must now complete the investigation into these privacy violations. As we previously reported though, here on the GDPR Weekly Show, there's widespread disquiet across Europe at the lack of speed with which the Irish State Protection Commission is investigating big tech, but in fairness to the Irish State Protection Commission, they will argue that they are desperately under-resourced. And so again, doubtless this is a story which will continue to run into future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. If you're a regular listener to the GDPR Weekly Show, then you'll know that we've mentioned WhatsApp, the Facebook-owned messaging app, a number of times here on the GDPR Weekly Show. Indeed, we first mentioned them back in episode 67. We subsequently mentioned them in episodes 76, 92, 144 and 153. Well, this week, the whole WhatsApp saga took a further step forward when Facebook-owned messaging platform WhatsApp has been told it will learn within a month the extent of a fine by Ireland's privacy watchdog, the DPC, over an alleged breach of the GDPR framework following a binding decision by the European Data Protection Board, which is what we brought news to you of back in episode 153. The decision addressed the objections raised by a number of EU privacy watchdogs against a draft decision by the Irish DPC, the competent supervisory authority given that WhatsApp has its European headquarters in Ireland. Several consumer organisations have recently filed separate complaints against WhatsApp, accusing the messaging platform of repeatedly asking users to accept its new privacy policy without clearly explaining the implications for the processing of personal data. We welcome the EDPB's announcement of its decision and hope this leads to swift action by the Irish authority against WhatsApp for not complying with data protection rules, said Marian Fernandez-Perez, Senior Digital Policy Officer at the European Consumer Organisation, the BEUC. A WhatsApp spokesperson stated that they continue to cooperate with the Irish DPC and await its final decision. The DPC now has one month to finalise the decision, a draft of which has been shared with counterparts across the EU. Just a reminder, of course, that under GDPR, fines can be up to 4% of the company's annual turnover. In November last year, WhatsApp was reported to be allocating €77.5 million Euros in anticipation of a potential fine and for any potential measures related to it. Once we have an update on this from the Irish DPC, we will, of course, bring it to you right here on the GDPR Weekly Show. 365 days of reliable and objective news. There have been rumours circulating this week of a data breach at Clubhouse, which Clubhouse itself has vehemently denied. Having done some investigation, it does appear that the claim of a data breach is unfounded in this situation. What actually seems to have happened is that bad actors have been randomly generating phone numbers and then testing them against Clubhouse API. And if the Clubhouse API returns that that phone number is about the account, then it's marking that as being a Clubhouse number. However, it's very important to understand that in this particular set of data which is being offered for sale on the dark web, only mobile phone numbers are included. There's no names, no contact information, no credit card information, nothing at all other than just a phone number. And so all that the file is really achieving is indicating which numbers are live mobile phone numbers. Now, of course, that data in itself may be used by other bad actors in a phishing attempt, but we would 100% support Clubhouse's assertion that there's actually been no data breach of Clubhouse's data. So we now come to the first part of our interview with Dr. Jackie Taylor. And in this first part of the interview, we talk about the new age-appropriate design code being introduced to GDPR by the UK ICO. So as always, it's a great pleasure to welcome Dr. Jackie Taylor back to the Weekly Show. Welcome, Jackie. Great to see you again, Keith. Uh, hello again to the audience. And uh, we've got a number of things we want to cover. And uh, I, I know there's going to be a great interest to, to all the listeners. 
But perhaps first, Jessie, for those who've not heard you, do you want to say a moment who you are and what you do? Yeah, so um, hi there, everybody. I'm Dr. Jackie Taylor. I'm CEO um, and co-founder of Flying Binary. Flying Binary is a web science company. I don't expect you to understand that, and I know that Keith's not got time to cover it. But we changed the world with deep tech. I'm one of the top 20 impact entrepreneurs because we positively impacted um, half the world's population. But for this audience, the thing you care about is I'm one of the six data protection practitioners and practitioners of excellence recognised by the UK's Information Commissioner. So I'm a, a regulatory geek too. That's great. Thanks, Jackie. So, yeah, I, I think we want to start with you. I, I know you've got some, some news for us about tech as part of the GPR space, if you like. So perhaps you'd like to expand on that and why why changes in tech and why everybody be aware of what's happening, prepared for change. Yeah, thanks for that, Keith. Um, there's, a, there's a whole bunch of changes that are unfolding and I've made a promise to Keith that as I'm able to talk about those publicly, I will come back. But I felt that it was good to introduce this one because it sets the scene for all of you who are on this GDPR journey. It's effectively the next step. And um, it's around all the online tech services that you may use as part of your supply chain, as part of your, your management of anything to do with personal data. It's around that. Likely, though, you won't be the owner of those services, but you'll be the, the purchaser of them, the procurer of them, maybe the consumer of them. And so whilst as a tech industry, we're, being, uh, we're changing how we do things, I thought it was really important that anybody that's procuring services to make, meet their GDPR compliance also understood what was going on, because this is a fundamental change, so, uh, really the first change like this uh, since so Tim Berners-Lee created the World Wide Web over 30 years ago. So it's a milestone. We'll always remember what we did here with GDPR. Obviously, the foundation of GDPR allows this, this change. And essentially, what it is, is we're going to be, we are now looking at implementing the or supporting technical companies to implement the age-appropriate design code in the GDPR. And that came into force in the, on the 2nd of uh, September 2020, with a 12-month transition period, quite tight, really, from a technology point of view. So from the 2nd of September 2021, any of the services you're using for your GDPR compliance, any of the procurement you're doing, you should be having, um, you should have an element of that around age-appropriate design code. I just want to clear one thing up that I get asked all the time. Is the children's code the same thing? It is, because um, those of us that drafted the GDPR weren't really um, thinking about how, uh, really about the buzzwords around things. We were, what does it do? Age-appropriate design was what it did. But obviously, our customers for this, the people that we're looking to, to, um, to, to uh, protect with this, are children. So age-appropriate design, they wouldn't know, they wouldn't care. So if we call it the children's code, they know it's about them. So it is the same thing. If that's what you're looking at, that is the same thing. So I want to clear that up first. And essentially what Flying Binary, my company, has done, I've partnered with the Information Commissioner to create a sandbox offering around using the, I'm going to call it age-appropriate design, because I think for you all as GDPR 
um, as part of this GDPR world, that's what you should call it. But essentially to create an offering in a sandbox to show the technology industry how this is done. But I just want to take it back one step because what this is all about is the best interest of the child online. And that concept comes from the United Nations Convention of Rights for the Child. And anything that's in the best interest of the child, it, it is part of your service. And if it's not in the best, best interest of the child, you're, you will fall foul of that. Now there's a number of things that come under this and it's complicated and we can't possibly do it in one episode. But just to give you an idea, um, children have the right under UNCRC, actually Article 32, if anybody needs to know, to be safe from commercial exploitation. I think we're all aware that the current environment is not that. And they also have the right to be protected from abuse when they interact with one another. We are effectively high privacy. If you think of the AADC as a high privacy intervention on behalf of the child in, and in their best interest, you're right there. And the uh, abuse, protected from abuse is Article 34. I just mentioned one of them, a right to, children have a right to access to a wide range of information and media. So this is not about not serving them with things. It's about serving them with things that is in their best interest. So, um, and that's actually Article 17. So what this means is for the whole technology industry from the 7th of September, 2021, so not far now, this needs to be part of your GDPR compliance. So that means every DPIA you have has to be reviewed for this context. Now I'll talk a little bit about what's the content of it in a minute, but it's much too, I can't go into that in much detail on this because it's complicated and, and it's lengthy and it's really down to individual technology services as to how that's implemented. But what I will say is in the sandbox, our intention of flying binary was to, to bring to the ICO one of the complicated use cases on this. So we are a company that deals with deep tech. You may not know what that is, but this is technology that uses um, things like artificial intelligence, deep learning, machine learning to actually um, to process personal data. And so this is a complex AI service that is used in a complex setting. So the complex setting it's in is in acute mental health provision. So um, our young people and, and effectively between the ages of 18 and eight, clinicians are having to support those young people in that setting and, and they need to be able to apply the AADC. What we are doing, uh, we do that already. We do that in clinic as part of their mental health provision, um, as part of the safety plans and safeguarding that's done and, and as part of the annual reviews for our young people. We do that already. But what we've discovered as a result of that work is that the young people themselves want that right to participate. And so the code actually allows us to be able to do that. And so we're, we are using the sandbox process to identify how you would do that, to explain to the regulator how, you know, we, we actually don't have this new app built. We are building it with the regulation. I believe it's a world first that the regulation is designing a service. So this takes RegTech, which is technology that that helps you meet a regulation actually to the very front of it. So it's designed with the child in, with the best interest of the child in mind. And this app will be in their hands. And effectively they can, in, a, in this high privacy setting, they can refuse to use it, obviously, because it's actually you know, on their best interest. 
We also have the wrinkle in some of this acute mental health provision where it's not necessarily the, the, the actual age of the child that we necessarily need to consider. It's the developmental age of the child. So it's a, it, if there's a more complex setting, I don't know it. And so we were, we've already done lots of this work. And so it was to demonstrate alongside the ICO, we could demonstrate that this can be done in any setting, extremely complex setting. This code has been used to design the, the, the solution. And, and the best interests of the child are, are being done right through that design. And so at the outputs from the sandbox, <clears throat> when we come out the sandbox, the ICO team and the flying binary team will, will effectively um, give the learning experience, both from the regulatory and the technical point of view, out there. So we will be making that available. And in fact, you know, I know now we have to make resources available to the technology industry because it's been clear that um, what flying binary can do is, is not what most people can. And in an artificial intelligence setting, even more complicated. So we'll be doing more than what we originally envisaged as part of our sandbox partnership with the information commissioner. And we'll be um, working to support the technology industry do this. And essentially, um, there are 15 standards as part of the code, and you have to go through all of those in order to, to really um, explain what you're doing about it. Because there's 15 ways in which you have to prove that you, are, are, you do have the best interest of the child in mind. And I think that some of them are things that technologists and you as, as consumers of technology or procurers of technology are um, used to with GDPR. So one of the standards is around transparency. Well, in order to meet compliance around that, of course, then you've got some of that. But it's very interesting, ones that we're all used to in flying binary and the regulators used to, um, it, changes the, it changes the way in which you approach it. And one of the ones that's a surprise to us is data minimization. We have, we build our deep tech services with data minimization as a driver, that is, we've always done that since before GDPR was uh, was mandated. But actually, we've taken uh, an even more robust look at that because we've realised that when you're serving the best interest of the child, the data minimisation approaches you take don't fit there. So we've made some major adjustments there. And then um, the DPIAs, we have a brand new DPIA that we're now creating alongside the regulator um, to show how we've implemented this. So, so I think there's a couple of things I've said already, and I'll let Keith chip in. A couple of things I've said already, um, literally by the 2nd of September 2021, it needs to be on everybody's agenda to at least say, we're looking at this, what does it mean for us? Um, you should be looking at reviewing all of your DPIAs in the context of this. So this is, it may well be that um, you've got twofold things. You've got your GDPR compliance piece, which obviously, you know, is the thing that Keith knows well, and he's here for your support. And then it's around the technology you're using and what your suppliers have done. So I think there's two key things that as a heads up type briefing, which is what I view this as, um, I wanted to bring, um, bring in um, to, to this podcast as a sort of starter for 10 um, I'm telling you about this because it's a huge change and I believe um, it brings the online um, technology into an appropriate place 
that goes beyond just the personal data, but around the online experience. So that's my overview, Keith. I'm happy you chip in or I do some more. I'm guided by you, really. Okay. Yeah. So that's really interesting, Jackie, especially a bit about, you know, having to do EPIAs and see how they, how they now fit with it. I guess one question companies are likely to have on that is to say, well, you know, our service, we don't aim it. We don't aim it at anyone under 18. Do we, act, you know, I suppose we're, we're uh, I, I, let's take an example, I, I suppose we're gambling, we're worried about this at all. Say, well, we don't do it under 18. It's not something we have to worry about. And I know I'll give you a minute because you know what I'm going to say next. It matters to everybody because we all know that our young people online don't often have to comply with the identification of services and therefore age verification is an age-old technology. I started work up on that back in, like, I don't know, uh, 20, 2008 in terms of doing that. We don't have, as an industry, have that bag. And, and so you still would have to look at it as a company to say how you dealt with the idea that a child might get access. What do you do about that? So, so you must assume that it's possible for them to access your services unless you have strong age verification. Now, there's the, the rules and the standards around that are all being changed at the moment as well. But if you haven't looked at this in the last year, you do need to look at it. If you have looked at it in the last year, did you change your DPIA as a result of it? If you didn't, I would suggest that you need to. And then the other piece that I mentioned earlier was the data minimization piece of it, because, of course, this is, this is um, high privacy. So this is moving the special category provisions into another realm. And so uh, I wouldn't like to be on the end of an audit where you said, well, we don't serve children uh, with any of our services and therefore we're fine. You need to go through this process. Um, and I think that at the end of the day, we're all concerned about our young people online, which they live their lives online, let's yeah. be honest. Mm. And, and therefore as a responsible society and as responsible business owners, one thing we we I'm sure we all can agree on is that we're whatever we provide online, we don't want that to be any harm or abuse to the child. Sure, sure. And, and so I think that there's a there's a an ethical piece to this at, for any company. I mean, Flying Binary's mission is inclusion, leave no one behind. So this is our territory. This is you know we 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 uh, build technology on behalf of the vulnerable, on behalf of children, on behalf of those. Who, who are disen, uh, disenfranchised by technology, and that's, that's our mission. And, and for, for us, I would say that having that focus on things has helped us be clear about what we'll build and why. Um, and I would say that this is now the time, um, well, not much time, but in the next few weeks for every company to say, and we are one of those companies too. Flying Binary has been able to say that since 2009, but there is a, I, I do believe this will be a differentiator um, because every client you have, even if in your gambling example, they know of or have children themselves. And so there is a social responsibility as well as an ethical responsibility for this. Um, and so, yes, there may be some who say, well, we didn't do it. Have a good explanation if you happen to be on the order as to why. Right, yeah. No, no that's a good point. And, and is it also the case then, like... I mean, those of CPR conception basis have, have always said is about 
don't be afraid, don't be so afraid of the financial penalty, afraid of the damage to your reputation. And I guess this yeah. is in a similar field where you know the, the major mm-hmm. is likely to be that you don't want immediately that organization doesn't have children as opposed to the fact that you might get a penalty in the high thousands of pounds that's probably compared to commercial damage and damage to your reputation i think so and i and i think i would have said that was true without a pandemic but i think we're all aware of the impact of the pandemic on our young people on our children all across the world we know that they've been disenfranchised through this because their entire education provision's been Upended and online is their space now for their home life, for their school life. So uh, as a, as we move ourselves forward and and hopefully out of this pandemic, it's like I say, there's an there's an ethical responsibility for any com any company, but there's also an understanding that our young people will have to live their lives online because, quite frankly, other options may not be there for them for the next few years and so i think the pandemic has forced that issue now um and we know from the work we're doing with um uh, we call we codename this project and we're in the ico social guardian we know from the social guardian research we've done with our young people and with the the healthcare professions in the uk in the uk that 40 percent of the of the work of our clinicians um, our general practitioners, the first point of call in the NHS is around young people and their mental well-being. And so if you're giving them an experience online that is not in their best interest in a pandemic setting, I would say that that exacerbated your need to look at this now. Sure. Yeah, no, that, that, that's interesting. I picked on something else you said, which I thought was, was about the age-appropriate code and, and the fact that, you know, that age would apply more in terms of maybe a, an intellectual age than a physical age, if that makes sense, because obviously... Yeah, don't, we call it de- developmental age for yeah. our young people that have learning differences. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that's going to be able to bear in mind because, mm-hmm. yeah, again, obviously, depending on what your potential is, but nonetheless, I yeah. think that. And I, I know one thing we were concerned about when this was first talked about a year ago was about the whole issue of consent and how consent might change the yeah. consent. Are you able to expand on that at all? I can give you a sneak peek, <laughs> but we're going to be coming out with some guidance on that. Um, essentially, the developmental age has an element in this, but if I stick that to one side for the moment, because we treated that as a special case to, to ensure that high privacy in that case. Um, it's still, at, from the data subject's point of view, from the child's point of view, Parental consent doesn't need to be, doesn't need to, can only be enforced if there's a guardianship. So the child can still say no. The child in our case can say no to the clinician as well. And there's there's some changes where we think it isn't just a broad age range. We believe that from a developmental point of view, whether that's the same as their actual birth age, um, the age of, four, of 13 is a watershed. And so how you look at those two things, be pre and post, pre and 13 and beyond, needs to be different. So we've we've made that case to ICO and, and some of the outcomes of the Sandbox report will go into that. But um, it's, it's complicated, let's say. And um, in settings like ours, where there is a guardianship, more complicated. 
but also it isn't what's in the best interest of the child, but the child has a say. And I think a lot of our online services haven't taken that into account. They've served the child, but they haven't served, served necessarily what they, they need. I love some of the, the networks of young people we're working with on this. I have some of the, the most amazing young people who, um, who have uh, Down syndrome uh, learning differences. And they are very clear about how they're not served online. Very, very clear. And that has helped us tremendously because they're able to say, not this, but that. And so the Social Guardian, as we call the project, has been, is now able to be very clear about how we're implementing what you're asking. And um, the DPIA that we're producing from that um, is not the DPIA we would have produced without that element of it. And so applying the, the, the uh, standards out of the 15 online standards we some of them don't apply to social guardian but some of them do how we've implemented each of those 15 we've gone into we have a manifest that goes into great and glorious detail as to how we've approached each of the 15 um, and uh, there's a whole piece around how we serve the various uh, cohorts I'll call them of young people based on this particular survey and how the clinicians come in on that our researchers, because at the moment, in order to, to be able to get through this process quickly, we, the clinicians asked us to address um, acute mental health provision around bulimia and anorexia. That's both those conditions are consequences of this pandemic for our young people. But we will be, once we've done the initial social, social guardian deployment and, and the technology is built, be looking at other pathologies, um, other uh, acute mental health conditions that are not those two and so it's been really important to understand this and to have contributions from our young people directly into what we're doing in the design of it and that's one of the things in talking to other technology companies they are unsure how to do that so in terms of making resources beyond the ICO report available we will be doing follow-on resources for technology companies because um AI normally, artificial intelligence, if you're buying technology that has it in, it's very unlikely you've built it. So everything I'm talking about here means that this is a black box in this AADC world. And so what questions do you ask your supplier? Well, how do you implement it? How do you take your existing GDPR provision and bring this in? Yeah, it's really interesting what you said there, Jackie. And yeah, it I remember that uh, the lady a case against this government for not having someone doing sign language at the prime minister on, on COVID. I thought the person in there was really well briefed because the person in there said, well, surely you just put subtitles on the subtitles. And, and, and the person's response in sign language said, you don't get it. Sign language is not subtitles. Sign language is a whole different language, just like French or Spanish yeah. or, or whatever. Someone who's yeah. fluent in sign language may not be able to read at all, but, but they, yeah. they they understand sign language. Yeah. And, and I thought that lady put that over so well that, you know, that was the thing that being missed, if you like, in, in the, the wider media coverage of that. So I think, mm. I think talking about media coverage, and I'm, you probably guessed now I'm doing one of my favourite soapboxes when we talk about the ICO, is <laughs> I, I, I can see a good number of people sitting, sitting at home who are going to be saying, well, this is the first I've heard about this. No one's told me anything about this. Where's the publishing about this? And, right. and, 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 you know, I, th I think, you know, I mean, you and I know about it for about it on for the last 12 months, but I, th I think the wider perception maybe isn't there yet. 
And I've noticed, um, perhaps been trouble in one, also people panic, you know, it's, it's the end of July now, this is coming in September, and I, we've got to read all our DPIAs. We ain't going to be able to do that in four weeks. Yeah. And, and, and I think part, uh, I think I'm guessing, and I, I hope I'm saying, that essentially it's going to be a bit like when DPR first came in. The important is really going to show that you're on the journey and not necessarily yes. that you've reached the destination. Yes. yes. So I think the first thing first, if you're a technology company listening to this, you needed to have started already. So that journey needs to have started and made a definite start. If you're not a technology company, but you're consuming or procuring technology services, you, you need to effectively, the equivalent of raise a project to say we need to look at, not all your DPIAs have got to be done by the 2nd of September, but you, need, you, you would need to have this on your agenda. You would need to know, it, it, in a sense, it is a reprise from when we got GDPR through and um, originally in 2015, November, December 2015, and then from the clock started from uh, the 25th of May 2016, and then we had the, the, the yeah. two years grace before it was mandated. We're in that same space now In if you're not a technology company, because between now and September, everybody can send an email to their technology companies and their suppliers asking them what they've done. Everybody can do that. I wouldn't like to be on the the end of of uh, an audit where I had to explain why I couldn't do that. So so and you know I think that's a that's a very sticky wicket. Yeah. But if you do that, you started your journey, and then obviously dependent on your supplier's response, then you you take it forward from there. Uh, if you're a technology company, um, this is tricky. And from a point of view of any of your provisions you've made under GDPR. They need to be um, scheduled for review. I would say started for review now. Um, so if this is something you're unsighted on, I mean, one of the things I've said to Keith always for this audience is um, I, I come regularly onto this podcast because I, I will provide support to it. So if you get in touch with Keith and you've got questions and what have you, I guarantee you will be doing a follow up uh, podcast on this. But if you need questions or you need to do things one-to-one on that, it's there. You just need to contact Keith in the usual way and we'll organise something. But I think that the um, it has been being socialised in the same way that um, everything else is socialised. However, we are in a pandemic. So perhaps the noise around the pandemic, and if you happen to be in the UK, the noise about Brexit and the pandemic, has been rather loud um, and so, and so it, it maybe hasn't made the news in that respect and that's one of the real reasons that Keith and I decided to do this heads up podcast briefing because we should be thinking about business as usual how we return how we get there and I'd like to think that you understand with what I've um, told you already that this is part of that preparation. Yeah, I think that explains it really well, Jen. And, and I, I think as well, just again to clarify, because obviously this goes out in you know, 112 countries now. Well, well, mm-hmm. Wow. If, 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 if you're overseas and you're supplying the EU market, UK market, it supplies to you. It does. It does. So if, you, if you're doing, providing online services, into this European or UK jurisdiction, then it applies to you. So you do have till the 2nd of September to, to have made provision for that. Um, and I think the other thing about it is I would say to those uh, people that are listening to say, well, you know, I'm not in that jurisdiction and therefore I'm okay. Possibly that's what people said 
um, in at the end of 2015 when GDPR was was pulling set, and and largely the whole world's been affected. This is the same change because regulators would argue that any online service needed to consider the child already, and and really if we're considering them, it needs to be in the best interest of the child anyway. So uh, there's an argument to say why is this not already done? And so we but we know enough about. Um, uh, some of the things we've heard about online services doing and, and some of the, the um, suffering that young people have had online, that that's not actually true. And so if you're elsewhere in the world, it really is something that needs to be on your agenda now because this, the reason this only had a, a, a year's uh, grace was because it needed to be done immediately. So it will not take very long for this to become a mandated style requirement. I'm not saying it's going to be mandated. And so, as I said at the beginning, really, this is, there's an ethical and a moral piece around this. Do we want to be the company, like Keith said, on the front page of whatever, that doesn't care about children? We all care about children. So take this as a signal change if you're not serving this market. Um, as I said at the very beginning, this is the first major change to force this um, type of behavior online since really the web was created. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. In our interview with Dr. Jackie Taylor, which we featured in this episode, we've several times mentioned the age-appropriate design code from the UK ICO. So we thought perhaps it was worth setting out the 15 standards which are covered in the age-appropriate design code. These are the best interest of the child, data protection impact assessments, age-appropriate application, transparency, the detrimental use of data, policies and community standards, default settings, data minimization, data sharing, geolocation, parental controls, profiling, nudge techniques, connected toys and devices, and online tools. In essence, companies with online services for children and those developing new services should review the code principles. Businesses offering online services in the United Kingdom in particular will want to particularly ensure that they are in compliance by September 2021, as the ICO has indicated it will enforce the code with its powers, including warnings and reprimands, injunctions and or fines. Although at the moment this code applies to the UK, it's known that other data protection authorities across Europe are working on their own versions, and indeed it's thought that the Irish Data Protection Commission will soon be announcing their version of the age-appropriate design code. So what should you be doing if you want to make sure that you are compliant? We're going to cover this in much more detail in the next few weeks, but in essence, you should double-check your services audience and the steps you take to screen out and or protect children. You should make sure that all optional data selection and sharing settings are off by default for all users under 18 in the UK, and that's a very important point that the age for a child under these new regulations is changing from 13, as it is at present, to 18. You should work towards child-friendly privacy disclosures in your privacy policy and just-in-time notices. And that might mean that instead of your conventional privacy policy having just words, you might want to have uh, privacy policies with cartoons or animations. And indeed, we'll be covering that again, as I say, in future episodes of GPL, which are coming up between now and September. You should ensure that your documentation is in place and consult with children where possible. This means carrying out data protection impact assessments and actually maybe talking to children about how they will be affected by your website or the service you're providing or indeed your toy or other device which connects to the internet. 
Obviously, all this needs to be taken into account with the full global privacy program. And so it's a major piece of work. And it means that for most companies, there will be need to revisit any DPIAs, any data protection impact assessments you already have in place. And if you need any help with that, then do contact us on the contact details, which are coming up right now. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. To Hackney in London now, an IT staff at Hackney Council have accidentally made a staggering cache of personal data on vulnerable residents available to anyone with an internet connection. The astonishing privacy breach came when senior managers at Hackney Council chose the wrong privacy settings on a free-to-use project management website and was only fixed when the Hackney Gazette newspaper tipped off the council's press team last week. The probe by the Hackney Gazette comes to six months after cyber criminals leaked a trove of confidential documents stolen in last October's ransomware attack against Hackney Council. For the council, Mayor Philip Danville vowed to take additional action to protect residents from further leaks. Other documents mistakenly posted online included a screenshot showing a vulnerable tenant's address and national insurance number, case notes from a welfare check on a fire resident, and minutes from a high-level housing meeting that revealed the council was losing half a million pounds a month because the cyber attack knocked out its arrears collection service. It's important to stress that the, these mistakes were not because of inexperienced staff, but they were from senior managers within the council's IT team. The Hackney Gazette decided to investigate Hackney Council's data protection arrangements after discovering that the council had inadvertently named a key witness in a game-related stabbing by posting links to a poorly redacted police report in the description of a YouTube video. All the data that's been released, or by accident, has been on Trello, and the Hackney Gazette has uncovered a network of 51 Trello boards used by more than 220 Hackney Council employees and contractors. Within Trello, when setting up a board, there are three options for privacy, Workspace, which limits access to members of the organisation. Private, which makes the boards invite-only. And Public, which allows anyone on the internet to see the worksheet. The default privacy setting is Workspace. However, what seems to have happened in this case is that for a reason we don't quite understand, Hackney's managers have set the settings, or had set the settings, to be public. It's important to stress that all of these boards have now been protected. A spokesperson for Hackney Liberal Democrats said... The major breaches uncovered by this investigation are simply shocking and highlight just how incompetent Hackney Council is when it comes to protecting residents' data. They called on the council to contact and inform all residents impacted by the breaches and offer a personal apology. It's understood that the council has made the Information Commissioner, the ICO, aware of the breaches. In a statement, the Mayor of Hackney Council said, I want to apologise on behalf of Hackney Council to residents affected by this data breach in which a relatively small number of cases of personal information were shared publicly in error. We have corrected any public access issues as soon as we were made aware of them and have carried out an exhaustive audit of all our Trello boards to ensure there are no more corrections that need to be made. He said that the Council has clear measures to protect data and will continue to remind staff of their responsibilities, adding, when we fall short of the standards, I, the Council and residents rightly expect that we will say so and take necessary steps to put it right, including contacting the ICO. This issue is completely unrelated to any cyber attack and not a reflection of our commitment to security. If we receive any further update on this from Hackney Council or the ICO, we will of course bring it to you in the next favourable episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Want to ask GDPR questions live? Come and join our GDPR surgery on Clubhouse, Thursday, 4pm UK time. 
to Northern Ireland now and a data breach in the COVID vaccine passport scheme which saw some people being sent under applicants' personal information is concerning and must be addressed, Sinn Féin's House spokesperson has said. The spokesperson said he will be raising the issue around the recently launched app and service at the recalled House Committee on Thursday next week. Significant personal information could have been exposed and it was right for the Department of Advisory Information Commissioner's Office, he said. The department must also ensure that those impacted are made aware of the breach and actions are being taken to address the issue. If we receive any update on this from the Irish House Authority, we will explain to you in the next available episode of the DGPR Weekly Show. Staying with COVID ID passports but going to Germany now, and German pharmacies have stopped issuing digital COVID-19 vaccination certificates after hackers created passes from fake outlets. Germans who have been fully vaccinated are entitled to a certificate which allows them more freedom, especially to travel. Pharmacies and vaccination centres have been issuing the certificates. The German Pharmacists Association, the DAV, said hackers had managed to produce two vaccination certificates by accessing the portal and making up pharmacy owner identity. DAV were alerted to the fact by the Handel's Black newspaper. In a statement, the association said the DAV, in consultation with the Health Ministry, stopped issuing certificates on Wednesday to investigate further, adding that it found no other indication of unauthorised access to the portal. It can therefore be assumed that more than 25 million vaccination certificates issued so far through pharmacies have all been issued by legally registered pharmacies, it said. After a slow start due to supply problems and bureaucratic hurdles, Germany's vaccine rollout picked up in May and June and now the pace of doses is slowing again. With the number of COVID-19 cases rising again in the last couple of weeks, Chancellor Angela Merkel urged Germans on Thursday to get vaccinated. Around 60% of Germans have had the first vaccination and 47% have had both. When we contacted the DAV this week, they said it's unclear when pharmacies will resume issuing passes and whether additional security measures are needed. If we get an update from this from the DAV, of course, we will always bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. To France now, and French publisher Le Figaro has been fined €50,000 by the country's Data Protection Authority after the Le Figaro website was discovered to be installing third-party advertising cookies without users' consent. CNIL, the French Data Protection Authority, imposed the sanctions after checks between 2020 and 2021 revealed that cookies were being automatically placed on the computers of visitors to the lefigaro.fr website without them being alerted or asked for permission. GDPR mandates that users' permission is acquired by websites before advertising cookies are deposited, given the amount of personal data they collect. The Figaro website was found to have breached these rules as it did not systematically guarantee the collection of consent. We've asked the Figaro for a statement, but at the time of going to broadcast, they've not yet come back to us. If we do receive a statement from the Figaro, we will, of course, bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. And now we come to the second part of our interview with Dr. Jackie Taylor. And in part two, we cover ad tech, how GDPR is becoming the gold standard for data protection around the world, why the US is deciding to implement its GDPR-like laws on a state-by-state basis rather than a federal basis, and then we talk about hybrid working as we all go back to work after top ID19 and the impact that will have on all our lives. Want to change to a slightly different subject and turn to the world of ad tech and what's happening there. And you know we're, we're very aware of things that are happening. Um, with you, some you know with some of the uh, some of the IAB to question by by and so on. 
what what's your vision on on that? Where we're going with that tax likely to happen the next? Well, I mean, there, there's a tactical change, which is what we're talking about here, but there's a strategic change on the way as well. So um, I'm involved at a global level at looking at the principles that we need to apply going forward on this across the whole of the global technology industry. And this is not a jurisdiction thing. I know we're on GDPR podcast, but ultimately technology is going to enable everything we all do. Over 50% of the world is online now. It's only accelerating. The pandemic has brought a billion new people online. So this is the, the, the path set fair now. And I think the reality of it is the tactical piece is um, this whole offer uh, from an ad tech point of view is in question. And if it's part of your business model, I believe it's uh, incumbent upon you to have questioned this, not just in terms of the AADC, but generally, because the scrutiny that's on this now is, is a global scrutiny. And there'll be some tactical changes, but there's some longer term strategic one coming in. Essentially, we're in a space where I suppose the best way of describing it is when, um, when we moved onto a new version of the web that, that effectively created the sharing economy to be able to monetize data, um, these practices were part of that. We are no longer, uh, in, uh, we're no longer going to be in that sharing economy. So my global work, I call that new economy, the empathy economy, which fits completely within everything I've talked about, because the best interest of the child, the best interest of everybody. So it's time for new, not just commercial models, the tactical piece that you talked about now, it's time for new business models in ad tech. And that's the, the big companies that serve that space are already making, and um, not all of which are announced. So I think that it's incumbent on us as organizations when we're utilizing that ad tech space to be very clear about what we're doing. And if you keep that phrase, the best interest of, in any of the provision you're doing for that, you will be closer to where we're going strategically. But know that every business model is effectively up to grabs in that space because it, it isn't serving as a society mm. and it's, serving, it's not serving the longer term game. And um, essentially where we're moving to now is a complete rethink of all of this. Yes, I do. I mean, I guess for those of us who are part of the T1, one of how GDPR has, if it's fair to say, become the gold standard for uh, yeah. other, other um, countries. Uh, and there is a movement adopted Japan now, if um, yeah. edging for closer yeah. to it. Um, well, I mean, in my work here, sorry to interrupt, in my work in the United Nations, I, I work with 180 nations. It's on their everybody's radar. Hmm. So unless you're serving countries outside of the UN members it's a different matter but if you're serving countries in the UN members then this whole piece about because GDPR doesn't just do the personal data and the privacy piece it does talk about security technology is what's enabling the change in our world as well it means that it's it's become not just the gold standard, it's become the foundation yeah so it might be implemented it's been implemented slightly differently in Japan mm. and CCPA in, in America is slightly different, but it needs to be within jurisdictions to fit with the rest of the legislation regulation. But for example, I've written the global standard for every jurisdiction regulation for um, data and, secu and security um, for, um, for, the for the UN nation. So we should regard it as the new bar and then we're building on it now. Essentially, that's what this podcast is about, about that future build. 
So assume it's your foundation, even if you're not affected by it now. And I would be concerned if you're not dealing with this now because we're moving the entire world on from it. So you haven't got your foundations in place. I think it's really important to say that we knew what we were doing when we were putting um, this, this regulation together. It, it wasn't possible to legislate forward. It was possible to regulate forward. And our online world has, ch has given us some challenges that our legislative agendas couldn't really tackle, but regulatory we do it this way. I would say that the global move at strategic level is not to regulate anyway. We actually will be, will be introducing technical standards, standards generally, because now we've got some of these foundations, we don't need more regulation, but we do need to um, be able to be um, utilizing specific standards. So yes, this is everybody's journey now. There's, if you're not a, a, one of the UN members, maybe it's not yours, but if you are, it's yours. Uh, I mean, I, I think that's a good point because, I mean, it's what we're seeing from early Sandy anyway. In the Republic of China, it would be very DPR focused. And so, as you said, there will always be local variation. I guess so. If I Just to say on that, Keith, is I, I was um, advising the Beijing government back in 2016 on this. So I would agree with you. It will be in their national setting, obviously, because it had, and that's true of every jurisdiction, it's in their national setting. But there is a core component various clients across the US, the mm -hmm. frustration that I have US clients is that rules are being set on a state by state, they're not a federal. Mm -hmm. and, and I know there is a Democrat, uh, I believe it's Democratic Senate, something for the Senate to actually get it at a federal. Um, mm -hmm. Do you believe that, that is, uh, I, I don't know if you can say, but do you believe that that's more likely to happen now we do have a change of administration? Well, it's an interesting question. It's, it's one I've been asked before. I've sort of got two answers to that. One CCPA came in in California, given that that's the home of tech in America, um, effectively it came in at a federal level, whether anybody chose to see it like that mm, or not. Mm. And then what often happens is effectively a, a ratification process at state level because there's particular implementations of something like that. But because this is all being, being enabled by tech, effectively it's being utilized anyway. California being first needed to be in there because that's where most of yeah. it's built um, from, a, from an American point of view. Um, does it need to be implemented at a federal level? Yes, possibly, but that's something that will either make their legislative agenda or not. Sure. But I think the reality of it is, I mean, I work with the Fortune 100 and they see it as a business differentiator. Yeah. So it's caused them not to just change commercial models, which is partly what's behind that question, but actually, as I said on, on an earlier point, business models, how we do business now is different. And um, irrespective of that, we want to be the ones that are part of that future and that innovative future. I think, again, the pandemic has influenced that because online only is becoming, you know, fairly common. Yeah. Um, and will continue to be so. And irrespective of what actually happens and how individual countries get out of the pandemic, hybrid working's here to stay. So arguably we've, we've been negotiating that um, change to GDPR to cope with the hybrid working throughout the pandemic. And at state level, that's happened too. Sure. So there is a there is a, almost a... Um, a the pandemic has accelerated what might have happened anyway, irrespective of the political, um, you know, environment, because that's the operating model that yeah. hybrid working is introduced. And and there may well be 
specific provisions um, in some states that need to go beyond that just because of their nature of them. But again, I always find America such an interesting market because we, when we build the technology to serve that market and we do have specific, you know, like HIPAA compliant uh, technology that does this stuff for GDPR over there, we always make these things configurable because actually what, where it starts, even if it gets to a federal level and where it needs to go, i.e. the forward trajectory is different. So what you might turn off to start with, you will shortly turn on. And it, it's some, in, in the US uh, context, I find that irrespective of the level of maturity of the setting sector or, or the organization, um, this is an agenda that actually brings business value in. So we found um, that by implementing technology in the way that we're talking about for organizations that do deploy across America, um, they found a two times ROI return on investment for it. We have one client that's had a 60 times return on investment in deploying tech that does that. Wow. So being able to service different states at the level of the maturity of the agenda, and then effectively as they move their capability to be more mature, then it, it just, you know, they're just able to implement like that. And, and that's a particularly forward thinking company who, who saw the direction of travel on this and understood it was a business difference and invest. And, um, and it's been interesting to see that rollout happen. That was pre-CCPA, so it was before it was really, that was starting to be deployed as we were deploying in Europe in 2016, that was starting to be deployed then. And that was one of the core reasons the Information Commissioner in the UK awarded me one of the six data protection practitioners of excellence because that work that we did for our setting here in Europe actually was a, a, a translate, translated straight away to territories like Japan and America. And so the idea that regulation had enabled that sort of innovation was really the reason I got my award. And I, I do believe that the, uh, the benefit from, um, from looking at this world that way, um, it's good business. Mm. I mean, that's mm. what the Fortune 100 would say if they oh. were asking. It's good business to do this from all the moral and ethical point of view, but actually from a, you know, it's, it's a lucrative way of investing in technology to create a return on, on that investment. And, um, you know, we've got those examples across the world. So, but America is a, is a, a specific setting. I find it very, very interesting. Mm. And so we've taken the approach that whether that federal level happens or not, to be able to configure at a state level, to be able to uh, include that at some later date if that happens, um, it means that they can start the journey. So that would be my answer to it. The political agenda, I'm obviously not going to comment on because no, sure. I have no say in that. And uh, I probably am, I would say I'm the least savvy on the political uh, machinations in America. Of, you know, Many of your listeners know better than I about that setting, but I don't think it's a political agenda because mm. it's a global one. Yeah, yeah, I really value. And I, I guess... You know, we talked a little bit about hybrid working. It does seem as we come out of the pandemic, let's mm-hmm. all, all our sakes, you know, we are coming out of the pandemic, though. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think that, that, that again, it's a case that we won't really be out of it till everyone's out of it. And yep. you know, that, that's uh, down the line, probably. It is. But, it is, yeah. But nonetheless, you know, for, for us, UK, we, we are thankful. But it has brought about the whole. And I think, really, I, I, I spot it from I would say, 
that hybrid working was probably on the has actually done though is fast much to attention. But it has made obviously companies think about what they use their office space and you, mm-hmm. you know that I think a lot of offices have to be adapted much more in places than working places. All bit that they're working but you know what I mean they're, they're, mm-hmm. yeah. the teams to get together to exchange ideas because I, I certainly have a firm believe that team work far better in person is great or team as great as those platforms are. They, they, they don't supplement uh, an exchange of ideas can have a course. But I, I think what is going to have to happen as part of that is that everyone's going to have to adjust their, their cybers to fit that new model. Yeah. Um, because at the moment, we've almost had, I had somebody, actually a company I did last week, who said, well, you know, yeah, but we're already there, aren't we? Because we've had people working at home. So yeah, we've dealt with that and we're in for that. And that's all fine. We've got our in place and all this good stuff. And I said, well, yes, but it's not quite the same. I said, because at the moment, you know, Joe is working, now has his laptop at home, and we've got all that firewall, VPN, and everything else. The difficulty comes when we do, and Joe is actually with his laptop and taking it from, mm-hmm. from, from, from and I yeah. think there's that whole measure of protected data that's in transit in the whole physical transit sense, mm-hmm. which is just addressing to that arena. That's my read. Would that all? I, I, I would and I wouldn't. Um, because um, I delivered the G20 plan to the G20 members in February 2020. I made it back from the Middle East two hours before we closed the gates at Heathrow in London. And I've had somewhat of a uh, robust discussion about um, requesting them to do the changes I was talking about, effectively move to a hybrid world. Um, for the industrial internet things, which is what we do. And they were they were saying, well, within five years. But I pressed hard for three because the change that I was pressing hard for and that, that G20 plan in 20 was around enabling inclusion. And within three weeks of returning under our first lockdown in the UK, we those 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 three years that that they were thinking it was going to take, that was over. And within three months we were we had accelerated the change across the G20 members to to be now. Um, There is, I find it interesting, this conversation, because when I set up Flying Binary in 2009, we are one of the first digital economy companies in the UK. The 250 companies that created five points, that seeded the ecosystem for 5.6 million companies uh, in that time. And we set it up virtually, not hybrid, virtual only. And then we had to adapt to a hybrid model because clients couldn't cope. And so many of the conversations we've had in this last year has been, well, what piece of this are you struggling with? From a cyber point of view, the industrial internet things have got four dimensions to it. But the physical piece of it, the piece you're talking about, is the least respected, least understood, least observed, most important um most important attack vector there is so if clients work with us and they won't add of the the four pillars they won't add the physical they don't work with us because we know that we know the the risk of that and in fact i've got you know the data to, to prove that not all clients will understand that very interesting to see the technology companies this week say you're going to be back in the office you need to jab get to jab for your job and so technology as an industry is pushing back to the office and uh and vaccinated uh workforces so that's obviously you know another play that's going on here and i think the reality of it is is i can't see 
how the workforce will will allow anything other than hybrid. Mm. And if it's uh, if you force hybrid, those people will leave. Because quite frankly, if they're capable of working virtually, there are jobs out there. And so some of the conversations I'm having with the Fortune 100 is that all of the technology we build is designed by a Generation Z and Gen Alpha. Gen Z are 28 to 18 and Gen Alpha are 17 to 7. So they are users. And whatever you see from Flying Binary, it's been designed um, to, to meet their needs. I do have a bunch of, of uh, entrepreneurs uh, the youngest of which is five so gen beta as well but we'll leave them to one side they are very much the emergent thing but in terms of the the hybrid world gen z so if you've got employees who are 28 or under moving them back to uh, an office only that won't happen they will leave um, and i can say that categorically because that's what's happened across the world during this pandemic because there is um, uh, a need to include people from a point of view of understanding their their social setting, you know, their personal setting. And, you know, often Gen Z uh, will say to me in, in the work that we do with them, look, I'm with you flying binary, net zero has to happen. And I'm doing everything I can to make that happen. And forcing me a commute is not going to happen. And so, you know, I've been very candid with the Fortune 100. I've said, if you want to force that, know that if they're under 28, they'll leave or you'll not recruit them. Or if you do, they won't stay. On average, they, they stay, just they stay about six months if that can't be shifted and they go. Given the talent that we need going forward as we ever uh, more focus on automating and technology being the means we choose, we get our organization growth, that's going to become a real problem. And then other than that, it's a question of, you'll need to negotiate it. But for example, in the US, our clients there have had to um, put an additional package together, i.e. pay them to come back to the office, double jab or no double jab. And so um, our younger workforce, which is comfortable with this technology, is enabling our organization to innovate on the back of a pandemic is, is not, I mean, I've got 34 million of them across the world that I've had this conversation with in order to do my G20 work, they're not negotiating. Mm. And there are plenty of organizations that will say, yeah, come work for us, we're with you. And so I think that, you know, the, it forever changed our world. And in terms of, you know, the point you made about every, earlier about everybody having to be vaccinated across the world, it's not about the countries that have been able to roll out a vaccine program. I mean, I'm planning personally from a, a flying binary point of view and the work we do at a UN level for really two more two more years the rest of this year and two more years for that to unfold so my horizon planning where all things become possible again starts in january 25 um so three more years in fact so i've uh, we've planned through to november 2024 on the basis that hybrid and restrictions around it um will need to exist and just to, to um to talk to you about um what you mentioned about needing to get people together that's actually a facilitation problem. So that's something that we, in the 12 years since Flying Binary was formed, we, we fixed. Now, obviously, we're a technology company, so we fixed it largely technology. But um, we have supported clients all over the world to, to make that happen. What has, uh, you know, for them, for their organization to continue to function, to continue to innovate, what has 
um, been really interesting as a result of that is it's actually connected the organization at a, an ideas level, at an innovation level that didn't happen before. Because what it's done is it's disrupted the hierarchical structures. Once you start bringing people back into an office and that to be a meeting space, uh, what's been happening in, say, financial services is that's a reassertment of, of the hierarchical structures. And again, our young, our young um, employees or entrepreneurs have gone, no, not working that way. So I think that um, if I can redesign the global technology industry and the principle I use across the globe uh, with ideas that don't exist, that we're inventing as, a, as an international team, there isn't a problem that can't be solved that way. It's more to do with your organization and how you will adapt your culture to this hybrid world. And there's, there'll be winners and losers on that, but the, the, um, the real ROI that you'll experience is actually winning on that agenda. And, and it's a culture of hybrid working is very different to what we had. And, and I find myself, I've just kicked off a new piece of work with um, a group of technologists where we've been solving this problem for um, organizations during the pandemic. Pandemic to be able to put technology together to allow technology to support organizations to do it. Um, because this, is, this isn't a load that uh, human resources departments can carry. This is what you're talking about here, Keith, is a fundamental change to the way our organizations work. And the larger you are, the harder it is. Um, and that, I don't need to tell anybody who listened to this, who, because if you've been attempting to move forward and, and to do the things you were wanting to do in this pandemic, you know how hard that is. But that culture piece is key. And so um, we're planning a new flying binary offering on that because our clients during pandemic and, and the other technologists that we've been meeting with on a, on a weekly basis have said, that's the pain point that everybody's struggling with. And as we come out of this pandemic, even if it does take three years, companies will continue to struggle. But, uh, but the idea will go back. You know, uh, not if you want to employ anybody under the age of 28, we won't. Yeah, no, I think I did agree 100%. Well, it's been a, a fascinating discussion, Jackie, as, as always. You're, you're always, as you know, a very welcome to our weekly show. And uh, I just wonder if you have anything you want to say before we wrap up. I did want to just thank you, Keith, as always, because I think it's important that we 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 um, we carry this journey forward as a foundation that GDPR has created by specialists like yourself, specialists my, myself, actually collaborating together to serve an audience. Because this is too big for any one thing, and and increasingly the changes I've outlined today, specialist services in these arenas are going to be needed. I know that's for, for true, which is why we've we committed to do this partnership with the UK's Information Commissioner. And what I would say to anybody who's listening as well is, don't panic. Keith's not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. The whole point of this podcast is to be, for you to be with us on this journey. And, um, and just a thank you for what all you've no doubt done during this pandemic to make sure that GDPR can journey continues. So a delight to be here again. Keith, thanks for asking me. I look forward to the next time. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. To Baltimore in America now, and Maryland drivers affected by an Uber data breach could be eligible to receive a $100 payout.
The news follows a multi-state lawsuit that resulted in a $148 million settlement. In November 2016, Uber learned that hackers had gained access to driver's license information of approximately 600,000 Uber drivers across the USA. The company did not report the data breach until November 2017. In Maryland, it's believed that 20,719 Uber drivers were impacted. Maryland Attorney General Brian Frosch said, Maryland law requires companies to notify affected consumers and the Office of the Attorney General following a data breach. Uber's decision to wait a year to send notification endangered the personal information of thousands of its drivers and violated Maryland law. Want to ask GDPR questions live? Come and join our GDPR surgery on Clubhouse, Thursday, 4pm UK time. We've mentioned before on the GDPR Weekly Show about how data regulators across Europe are taking a firmer view now on GDPR and penalties, and also that they're imposing penalties not just when you have a data breach, but for other breaches of GDPR too. And perhaps the best example of that is the Spanish Data Protection Authority, the AEPD. Until 2020, the average fine that the AEPD had issued was around €55,000. However, in 2021, the Spanish DPA has already issued 212 fines. Notable fines imposed so far this year include a fine to Vodafone Spain for €8,150,000, to the Spanish bank Caeza Bank for €5,000,000, and the BBVA, another Spanish bank, for €6,000,000 for the failures in processing data without a correct legal basis and for failing to provide the necessary information to data subjects. So notice we not at all connected with data breaches, you see, it's other breaches of GDPR. So the vast majority of penalties imposed by the AEPD are based on non-compliance with Article 5.1, principles relating to processing, and Article 6.1, lawful basis for processing of GDPR. Looking closer at the fines, the AEPD has also paid close attention to several violations of Articles 13 and 14, of GDPR which concerned the provision of information where personal data is collected from a data subject, Article 13, and where personal data has not been obtained direct from a data subject, Article 14. EDP Energy, for example, was fined €1.5 million Euros for violating Article 13 and 25 of GDPR. And Article 25 of GDPR, of course, is all about data protection by design and default. So you see, it's a wide range of penalties across all elements of GDPR, not just data breaches. And this we're seeing as a more and more common pattern right across Europe. So it's really, really important you pay attention to GDPR. Don't just worry about data breaches, though, of course, that's crucially important. But do make sure you're complying at least with the spirit and hopefully the law of all the rest of GDPR too. We will be returning to these in future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show and we hope to put together an education series where we can teach you about the various other aspects of GDPR as well as data breaches. So please do watch out for that in future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. These modules will also be available as a separate training course which you will be able to purchase. To Germany now and Germany's Supreme Court has specified the scope of the right to access under Article 15 of GDPR. Now, of course, the scope of the right to access is always a bone of contention. Just how much data are you expected to produce if someone presents you with a data subject access request? To give a bit of background to this case in Germany, the claim was made by the owner of a life insurance policy who received what he, what he said was incomplete information from his insurance company. He said that his request for his personal data included all data stored and processed by the insurance company relating to him, including internal and external correspondence, internal telephone and conversation notes, and any other internal notes, 
but also internal assessments of insurance claims. In 2019, the regional court alone had denied such a far-reaching right, saying that the right to access under Article 15 of GDPR does not include all internal documents of an insurance company, such as notes or internal correspondence, nor does it include past correspondence between the parties or information to them in commissions for insurance brokers. However, the Federal Court of Justice has this week rejected the regional court's approach and confirmed the right to access under Article 15 is in principle comprehensive as it refers to all stored or processed data to be linked to the person. This means it includes internal documents and correspondence with or about the person concerned. However, nothing is ever simple, because in addition to GDPR, the court also had to consider Germany's Data Protection Act, the BDSG. In particular, this relates to the data which the insurance company holds about commissions paid to agents or brokers, whenever the person making the subject access request has taken out an insurance policy. The court was unable to decide on this part of the case and so has referred the case to the Central European Court of Justice, the CJEU. So while this case helps to settle what is required under GDPR when responding to data subject access requests, it still leaves some room for interpretation because of the different laws across Europe in terms of the relevant Data Protection Act. So, for instance, in the UK, it would be related to the Data Protection Act 2018. We will continue to keep an eye on this case as it proceeds to the Central European Court of Justice, but as always, that's unlikely to be a speedy process, so we will bring you regular updates on this, probably throughout the rest of this year, here on the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Something we've covered a number of times here on the GPR Weekly Show, but still continues to generate a significant number of contacts to our help desk, is the whole issue of data retention. And so we thought we'd just very briefly tell you about the five key things that you need to be doing about data retention. The first of those, of course, is to create your data inventory, so you know what kind of data you have, what systems it's stored in, who owns it, what you do with it. Now, of course, you may already have a data inventory but it's well worth checking it to make sure it's up to date. The second thing you should do is document your compliance obligations. So in order to know when you can delete data you need to understand the full array of legal and compliance obligations that that data is subject to, not just the privacy regulations. So for instance here in the UK the HMRC says that you must keep your accounting records for six years and indeed most organisations in fact keep them for seven. Once you've done that, then review and revise your record retention schedule. Is it up to date? Does it accurately reflect how long you keep records for? Are there any reasons why you need to change it? Then, publish an information lifecycle management policy, an ILM policy. And the ILM policy should tell your employees what's expected of them throughout the lifecycle of the data, from the point of capture or creation, through the data usage, data management, data sharing, and eventually data disposal. And finally define the data disposal process. So what are you doing with the data when you finish with it? Are you destroying it? Are you anonymizing it? Just what are you doing with it? Make sure you document that for each and every piece of data in your data inventory so that should there be an investigation by the ICO or your relevant data protection authority, you're able to confidently say what you do in regards to the deletion of each piece of data that you hold. Hope that brief summary is useful. As always, if you want more help, then do always contact us using the details which are coming up right now. 
Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. The GDPR Weekly Show is an insurability production. Until next time, bye-bye.